So uh, if you are uh, still remaining with us, I'd encourage you to turn uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're just going to read a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, this morning. And the context of our passage this morning um, is a case that, that many have called to be a case of church politics. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but anytime you were, use the word politics, it usually evokes a very strong emotion in one direction or another. Uh, some people love politics. I realize that. Um, they love watching the political talk shows on television. Uh, they might like the, the politics shows of West Wing and uh, House of Cards. They love that sort of thing. So some people love politics. Uh, other people hate it. And they hate anything that has to do with politics. And part of that could be because we tend to live in a culture that feels very overly politicized. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. And, and what I mean by that is when we live in an overly politicized culture, it just feels like everything seems to devolve into a rush for power. And we draw all of these political lines that signal who is in the club and who is outside of the club. And that just doesn't happen with elections. Uh, we see politics that happen in our place of work. Uh, we see politics that happen on boards that we serve on. Um, we even see politics in, in Little League sports. I mean, it really is everywhere. And sadly, because of that, sometimes it even sneaks into the church. And we don't like that because we'd like to think that the church is a place that isn't political and doesn't deal with politics. The church is supposed to be an outpost of the kingdom of God. Uh, it is supposed to be a community of heaven that exists in the land of death. But because the church is full of sinners, it sometimes does devolve into all sorts of politics. Then uh, this is nothing new. It happens in our day, but it is nothing new. And it was happening in Paul's day as well. Paul is the author of our passage this morning. And the context of 2 Corinthians is that Paul is embroiled in church politics. And it happened in this small church, this small Christian community in the city of Corinth. If you haven't been with us, just to bring you to speed on our context, uh, after Paul planted the church in Corinth, he left that city. And after he left, a group of rival Christian leaders entered into the church. They played all sorts of politics and they opposed the Apostle Paul. Uh, they engaged in smear campaigns. They wanted to tear Paul down. Uh, they wanted to diminish his influence. And I'm sure there were all sorts of quiet conversations in dark corners of this little church as Paul's opponents worked around and politicked around the church, um, trying to steal Paul's influence, trying to influence the swing votes that were in the church. And so I can imagine Paul hearing about this, uh, ministering in other cities, hearing what's happening back in the church of Corinth, and probably uh, having all sorts of um, internal turmoil about whether he really wanted to step into this. Do I want to step into the fray, or do I just want to wipe my hands of this church? And of course, we know from this letter that he's willing to step into the fray of church politics. But he did it not because he was jealous for power. I don't think Paul cared about political power in the church of Corinth. I don't think he cared about control. 
I don't think he cared about reputation. I don't think he cared about prestige in this little church. But what he saw was that this rush for power was subverting the truth of the gospel. And so for Paul, he steps into the fray, not because he wants to defend his political position, but because he wanted to protect the message of God. And he wanted to protect these young believers in Jesus Christ. So that's the context of our passage this morning. And I'm going to be reading just a few verses today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verses 11 to 15. This is God's word. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to us in your word this morning. Thanks for the ways you've already spoken to us through song and through uh, prayer and through readings. Um, we pray that, uh, uh, that your word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, um, would cut deeply into our hearts today. Reveal to us our hearts. Reveal to us, uh, once again, the beauty of the gospel and your deep love for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, what I want to do is, is talk uh, a little bit about motives. That's what I want us to, to consider and to think about this morning. But any discussion about motives can be tough because motives can be difficult to identify and they can certainly uh, be very difficult to quantify because we're really thinking about our own hearts. But motives, if you think about it, are the things that cause us to act, they are the things that move us towards and determine our behavior day in and day out. Um, one philosopher, James K.A. Smith, said, our motives are often informed by our picture of the good life. So whatever we picture is the good life informs our motives, which then in turn are, inform our behavior. But anytime we think of motives, we have to recognize that, that often our motives for life are very complex. Uh, they're complex because they, they deal with our hearts, they deal with our mind, they deal with our emotions, they deal with our behavior. And so there's all sorts of things at play whenever we think about our motives. A great example as we consider this topic, a great example um, could be something very simple about um, exercising each day, right? So think about it this way. Maybe you've been uh, convicted that uh, you need to, to lose a couple of pounds. We'll all feel convicted about that after the holiday season. But maybe you feel that way and, and your, your picture of the good life is one that's a little healthier than what you're doing right now. So that picture of the good life motivates your motives. It, it brings about your behavior. And so if you want to lose a few pounds, when that alarm goes off in the morning, you're motivated to get up and maybe exercise before you go to work. 
But if your your motives are weak um, or your heart is a little half-hearted, when that snooze bar goes, or when that alarm goes off in the morning, what are you doing? You're hitting the snooze bar a couple of times, right? See, all that has to do with motives. And motives often are very complex. They're complex because sometimes we can do uh, good things out of good motives. And then sometimes we can have good motives for things Uh, but bad things happen. Sometimes we can have uh, bad motives for things and even good things happen. So so all this topic is very complex, but here, let's simplify it this way. If you are here and you are a Christian, then that means that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And the question I want us to consider is this. What motivates you to follow Jesus day in and day out? Following Jesus certainly isn't easy. Uh, It's often called the narrow path and often involves sacrifice. Sometimes it involves persecution. Sometimes it involves scorn. It's a path that has plenty of resistance. It often makes us appear very strange before other people, certainly in the eyes of the world around us. And so the question is, what motivates us to do all that? What motivates us to follow Jesus, not for just one hour on Sunday morning, but day in and day out? What motivates you to step into this struggle? Or maybe even a better way to ask that question, or another way to ask it, is what keeps you from wholeheartedly following Jesus day in and day out? What motivates you to follow Jesus? That's the question I want us to consider this morning. And it has to do with Paul's opponents here. Because Paul's opponents are really insidious in what they are doing behind the scenes. Because what Paul identifies is that they were following Jesus. We'll put that in quotes. They were following Jesus for their own selfish gain. They were following Jesus so they could gain power and influence in this church so that in the end they could actually fatten their wallets and fatten their reputations. Now, sadly, church history has been full of instances that are just like this. It's been full of Christian leaders who often get into it so they can build fame or wealth or reputation or recognition. They see even churches as opportunities to gain and to exercise power. But we get so upset about cases like that because we know instinctively that the true Christian path or true Christianity is not glamorous in the least. That means if you're looking for power, you should probably look elsewhere from the Christian story. If you're looking for fame, if you're looking for recognition, this probably isn't the best path for you. If you're looking to get rich or to live a luxurious lifestyle, this isn't it. Because following Jesus fundamentally means, what Paul wrote here, that we die to ourselves and we live for another person. It means we look to relinquish power, not hoard it, but to relinquish power as we serve others. It means suffering as our Savior does. And so if all that is true, let's go back to our original question. If all that is true, what on earth motivates us to follow Jesus day in and day out? I think our passage gives us two motivations, or at least these were the things that Paul says is what motivated him to follow Jesus day in and day out. There are two motives that I want us to unpack this morning. The first is the fear of the Lord, 
And the second is the love of Christ. So as we consider this, just take a moment and weigh your motives. How do your actions reflect what your true motives in life really are? What does or doesn't get you out of bed each day to live for Jesus? Paul starts here with the fear of the Lord. And if you could, look at verse 11 really quickly. He's really talking about this in 11, 12, and 13. But verse 11, he says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul uses a term here that's called the fear of the Lord. And if you've ever read the Bible or spent any time in it, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is all over. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. And a lot of folks come to that passage and they wonder, okay, fear of the Lord, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm supposed to be scared of God or, or frightened by God? Am I to live in fear before God? Well, the answer to that question is, is a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, last week, Mark did a, oh, just a wonderful job of unpacking verse 10 in this uh, first or Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then Paul's therefore that we just read in in verse 11 connects back to verse 10, essentially saying this, there is a coming judgment, so therefore fear the Lord. What does Paul mean by this? Well, the gospel tells us that in Christ, if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, if we have been found in him, then we no longer need to fear this judgment. The second half of verse 14 tells us why. It says, because we have concluded this, that one had died for all, and therefore all have died. So what Paul is saying is that those who are in Christ by faith recognize that Jesus was their substitute. That Jesus was the one who bore the brunt of God's judgment so that you and I would not have to. And so by faith, we receive this free gift of grace that God gives to us in Jesus. So when Christians think about this coming judgment, which is as certain as anything else, when Christians think about this coming judgment, they think about this coming judgment differently. It isn't a fear of being hurt or of being punished, but that fear is transformed into something different. Maybe a better way of saying it is when we think about the, the judgment of God, it isn't a spiritual life and death issue for us anymore because we have been found in Christ. So what God does is he transforms what it means to fear the Lord, and he transforms it into two things. It becomes two things. The first is this. Godly fear recognizes that we are accountable to our Savior as those who have been redeemed by his blood. We are accountable to our Savior as those who have been redeemed by his blood. What is Paul saying here? He's essentially saying this, God doesn't save us from our sins, which is wonderful. God doesn't save us from our sins and then say, go do as you wish. That's not what the gospel tells us. What God does do is he saves us from our sins and then he calls us to join him in mission. 
you've been with us, he gives us the treasures of the gospel. And then he calls us to take those treasures in jars of clay and go out into the world and to change the world with this treasure. But I think what happens sometimes, I know this is true in my own heart, I think what happens sometimes is that that Christians forget that we're actually accountable to God, our Savior. You've all had jobs before, and we've all had bosses. And when we are hired to do a job, we are accountable to our bosses that we will complete that job the way our bosses desire it to be done. And that's why when you come to the scriptures, so often uh, the scriptures call us servants to a master. We are servants to our master, Jesus Christ. And what that means is you and I, we're given time, we're given energy, we're given effort that we are to use for God's kingdom. We're given those things not just to hoard for ourselves, but we're given those things for a purpose. Look at verse 15, and he died for all, that, that's a big that, that word is important, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you've spent any time in the Gospels, you've read probably the parable of the the talents and so many other parables that are out there that that express this very thing. We are given much in Jesus, but we are given much for a purpose. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You are not your own for you were bought with a price and so glorify God in your bodies. So godly fear recognizes that we are accountable for how we use the time and the gifts and the talents that God gives us. So the question becomes, do you and I, do we use those gifts for his glory or are we consumed with using them for our own glory? The second thing that godly, how godly fear is transformed by the gospel is that godly fear recognizes that those around us will face the ultimate judgment for their sins. For them, it is a matter of spiritual life and death. You see, for Christians, God's judgment isn't a matter of life and death, but it is for those who are around us. And Paul says this multiple times in this book. Every person around you and I, people we rub shoulders with every single day, every person around us is headed for either spiritual life or for spiritual death. Every person we interact with around us is headed for eternity in one destination or another. And so Paul recognized this and he recognized the urgency of it all. He recognized the urgency of it all. And so all of this is what motivated Paul to follow Jesus. It's what he means by this motive of the fear of the Lord. He knew that we would be accountable to God for how we, get, we use our time and our giftedness, how those things were spent. He didn't want to be one who disappointed his master, who had secured his life for him through his shed blood. Paul didn't want to disappoint his Savior. But he also knew that everyone around him was headed toward that judgment seat. And for them, it was a matter of life and death. So Paul here, you almost get a sense, he has no patience for the politics. He has no patience for personalities or for reputation building in the church. 
The coming judgment is what motivated Paul. But there's another motive he speaks about here as well. Certainly the motive of the fear of the Lord. The second motive, and maybe perhaps the more beautiful one, is this. And that is the love of Christ. And he talks about it in verses 14 to 15. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Other translations, it says, for the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one had died for all and therefore all had died. So I think what Paul is saying here is, yes, we are accountable to God as our judge and as our master. But Paul's saying there's something even deeper here and something more beautiful here And that is that we are controlled by love. We're controlled by love. First, by God's immense love for us. And then consequently, our love for one another. You know, I'm a fan of C.S. Lewis. And he wrote about this in uh, his sermon, The Weight of Glory. And, And there are very few times, he always struck me as a very composed author But there are times when he writes where you just feel like he's full of emotion. And this is one of those places where he says this. He says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son, it seems impossible It seems a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. What is he saying here? He's absolutely dumbfounded at the degree in which he is loved by God. He's in amazement. He's dumbfounded by it. He says, God doesn't merely pity you and I. He doesn't merely pity us. He isn't impatiently waiting for us, sitting up in heaven on his throne, tapping his finger and his foot, impatiently waiting for us to get our acts together. He isn't arm twisted into loving you out of some sort of duty or some sort of obligation. He loves you infinitely and he delights in you faithfully. And so just think about that for a second. Try to let your minds come around that fact that God loves you infinitely and delights in you faithfully. The God of the universe finds utter delight in you. At this very moment, wherever you are, whatever mess you found yourself in, whether it's come to you from the outside or it's self-imposed, whatever mess you are in at this moment, the God of the universe finds utter delight in you. He loves you. One of the most powerful images of this is in Zephaniah chapter three, where it says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will exult in you with loud singing. This is what the God of the universe feels about you. The question is, do you believe it? It's there in the scriptures, but do you believe that God loves you to this degree? Because if you are in Christ, that means you are a precious, a precious son and daughter of the king. And if you want to know the proof of that love, you need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ and the lengths that he was willing to go to prove his love for you. 
And so that love, it controls us. It compels us, is what Paul is saying here. It captures our hearts. It moves us into action. I love how David Brooks, the writer for the New York Times, put this, and I read this at every wedding that I do. He wrote this, love is like an invading army that reminds you that you are not the master of your own house. It conquers you little by little, reorganizing your energy levels, reorganizing your sleep patterns, reorganizing your conversation topics, and toward the end of the process, rearranging the objects of your desire and even the focus of your intention. We could say in another way, love reorganizes your motives and how you live your life. The more we grasp Christ's love, the more it will transform our motives. The more following Jesus won't be a drudgery, or an obligation, or a burden, or a duty. Instead, it will become our absolute delight. And in turn, it will become our absolute delight to live for others, to love others. So the question is, what motivates you to obedience to God? What motivates you to action? One of the, I think, particular problems of American Christianity, and I don't know how we got here, but I think it is a problem in American Christianity, is that we've somehow divorced the gift from the calling. What I mean by that is somehow we've divorced this gift of salvation from living for God. Instead, all we want is a get-out-of-jail-free card, and then we just go on and live for ourselves. We hoard these spiritual gifts and the treasure that God has given us, burying it in the ground. But what Jesus calls us to is something that is so much more. And so do you live for yourself or do you live for Jesus, your master and your savior? You know, it was very clear, and this is the last thing I'll say about our passage, it was very clear that Paul looked strange maybe even crazy to the Corinthians. I often think they must have thought of him as some wild-eyed scientist you never knew he was going to do, right? And his opponents, they seized on this, and they used Paul's strangeness in order to uh, discredit him. But Paul, you can see it sort of between the lines in verse 13. Paul welcomed looking strange, He didn't care if people thought he was crazy. He welcomed looking strange because he was motivated by something that was deeper. He was motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Almost as if, if I'm truly and fully loved by God, the way the gospel tells me, then who cares? Who cares how I look? Who cares if I look strange? Because the truth is this, when you and I, when we're motivated by the fear of the Lord, When we're motivated by the love of Christ, guess what? We're going to look a little strange too. We're going to look a little crazy to the outside world. But in the end, it is the only true path to joy and the only true path to glory. We finish with the words of Galatians 2, Paul's same theme to a different church, but the same beautiful image. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's pray.